got a place, but I'm not talking specifically about the spot where you sit in our church building. I want to ask you, what is your role? What is your place in our church? Not one single person who's a member of this church is excluded from having a place, from having a role, from having something to do. Each person, we talked last week about the common bond that true church members have. Every single person who is genuinely a church member has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which comes through our repentance of our sins and turning to Jesus Christ in faith. And so if that's you, if you are someone who has said, yes, Jesus, save me, make me the person that you created me to be, and you have then come into the bonds of our church, you have something to do here. And this morning, what I would like to do, after we do another Energizer to get everybody up and moving around, I want us to look together at four specific roles that you and I have in our church, in any church where we might belong. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 6. As you're turning there, I want to make just a couple of announcements. Caroline's going to come and make more announcements at the end of the service. But first, our mom and pop's Sunday school class on the first Tuesday of each month, month has a luncheon here. And Miss Pam uh, prepares the food for it. Everybody just puts in 5 or $10. When I come, they ask me to put in 100 like they do for Wednesday night. And so that, in the newsletter, that luncheon was listed for next or a week from Tuesday. But it is this Tuesday. It is two days from now. And so I don't want you to be confused by that. And then this evening at 5 o'clock, we are going to have game night here. I've already been warned about how much you love to cheat. And so I will be watching for that, but I hope that you will join us. There won't be any, there won't be any person who comes tonight who says none of these things are for me. Now, not all of the games might be for you, but everybody will be able to do some of the games. And so I hope that you'll join us. Even if you say, look, I just can't play, come and watch. Come and be a part of what we're going to do tonight at 5. Let's read these verses together. I want to squeeze in a, quite a bit of information today from Galatians chapter 6. In the very first verse, the Bible says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Paul wrote these words to a troubled church. The 
they were not troubled necessarily relationally. Now, if, you, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that 1st and 2nd Corinthians were letters written to a church that had immoral problems. They were arguing with each other and bickering with each other. And so there was a lot of strife in that church. The Galatian church was different in that their troubles were doctrinal, theological. After Paul had visited this region and had declared the good news to them, said, I have the best news that you've ever heard. God sent his son to be born on this earth. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and rose again on the third day. And everyone who receives him can be forgiven of his sins and go to heaven when you die. After Paul preached that message, he spent a little time mentoring, discipling, equipping them. And then he moved on to another place to do ministry. After Paul left, some sneaky false teachers came in. And they said, we need to clarify what Paul said. Most of what he said is right. But you also need to do some works in order to get to heaven. What Jesus did was very, very good. And we don't want to discount that, these false teachers said. But you also must do some good deeds if you hope to get to heaven. And so Paul wrote this letter back to them and said, no, what I told you at first is exactly right. It is Jesus Christ alone. It is none of our own merit, none of our own works, nothing we can add to the work that Jesus did on the cross. What he did was sufficient. He shouted, it is finished. And it was finished. We don't have to add anything to it to finish it up. And so Paul wrote this letter to them. You can read the first four chapters and see where he was trying to work through that. But then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul turns to some practical matters. And he talked specifically about how we are to relate to each other in our connection in the body of Christ. There are four different ideas. The third, I already know the third one. I'm going to speed through a little bit. But the four areas that Paul talked about here begin with this idea. Paul says we are to lift up each other. Look in verse 1 at what Paul said. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing... You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Paul said, look, just because we have received Christ as Savior doesn't mean that we aren't going to sin, doesn't mean that we aren't going to know what God wanted us to do, and we do the opposite. Doesn't mean that we're going to, to know something that God doesn't want us to do, and we do it anyway. Paul said, we're still human. God is working on us. He is sanctifying us. He is making us more like Jesus. But we aren't there yet. We aren't yet the people that we are going to be. And so, when we are living here on earth, we're still going to do what is wrong. Paul says, when one of us slips into sin, particularly if it is becoming a pattern of sin, when one of us is in that area, then the rest of us surround that person and we say, hey, we want to get you back out of, out of the, the mud. We want to put you on the right path again. It's a responsibility that we have in the body of Christ. Now, churches make two mistakes when it comes to members who are in sin. One mistake they make is down on this extreme. And they say, oh, we just want to be loving. 
We want to be loving people. We don't want to judge. We don't want to criticize. We don't want to be hard on people. And, and so let's just love them. Let's never mention their sin. Let's never confront them about it. Let's never rebuke them over it. Let's, let's just be loving, loving people. And maybe they will turn around. That's a mistake, Paul said. Then down here on this end, you have churches that are like sledgehammers. And someone falls into sin, someone gets, gets off the right path, and these people in their self-righteousness bring out the hammers and they say, you are terrible, we don't want you here. And they start beating on those people. Paul said either one of the extremes is an un unbiblical response to sin. What he said is, the loving church does not ignore the sins of its members. Neither do they condemn the person for their sins. They gently lift the person back to get them on the right path again. I know that you, some of you remember when we still had church league softball here in, in Lowndes County. You know, one time, I think churches can still sign up to play softball, but you, you play in the industrial league, you know, with insurance companies and whatever. But at one time, there was, uh, there was a, a, a regular church league that you just played against other churches. And I guess Lowndes County Recreation Authority got tired of all the profanity being shouted <laughs> during the... Uh, I don't want to make a comment about Bersheba, but you had a reputation. And so, one evening when I was still at Mount Vernon, we were playing a church league softball game, and I dove for a ground ball. And when I did, I landed on my glove awkwardly and, and kind of jammed my thumb. And so, the rest of the evening, whenever... Whenever a ground ball was hit, the ball would hit my glove, and the pain from that thumb would just shoot up my arm. And whenever I would go into the dugout, I noticed that that, that little joint right there was swelling. So I would try to put ice on it, but it just got worse throughout the evening. It, it got more painful. It got to where I couldn't move it. And so basically, when I was coming up to bat, I was swinging one-handed. You know, I would have one hand on the bat and then swing like that. So that night, I only hit three home runs. Instead of the standard four. And so that, that evening, that was a Tuesday. I remember it because of what happened the next day. That, that evening, I went home and kept ice on my thumb all throughout the night. The next morning, got up, went to the church office. It was still really sore, really swollen, so I kept the ice on it. And then just before our Wednesday evening youth service, I was down in the youth building getting all of the chairs and everything ready. I still had the little ice bag on, on my thumb. A sweet little girl named Christy Orler came in. Christy, tiny, came in and said, Gary, why do you, why do you have your you know, ice on your hand? And I said, I jammed my thumb last night playing softball, and it's sore. I'm just trying to keep the swelling down. She said, let me see. So I took the ice bag off, and Christy went, oh, your thumb is broken. I said, I don't think it's broken. Because I had always heard if you could still move it, you know, it wasn't broken. And so I said, so I, can, I can't move it much, but I can move it. She said, no, that is, it looks terrible. That is broken, Gary. 
I said, Christy, why do you think it's broken? She said, does that hurt? <laughs> and so if it wasn't broken before, it was broken afterwards. And so the next morning, I got up to go to two medical clinics, one to get my thumb fixed and the other to see Christy after I had to knock her around for grabbing on my thumb. And so I went to, uh, what's that on Highway 45? It used to be called like Emergicare or something. Anyway, I went over there to that clinic on 45 and walked in. They took a couple of x-rays. And when they took the x-rays, Dr. Freelu came in and he said, Gary, your thumb's broken in two places. I said, are you serious? He said, yes. And so we're going to have to, he was going to have to get this back in place. And so he looked up at the x-ray and he saw the fractures and the cracks there. And so at looking at the x-rays, he, he took my thumb and he pushed it back into place so that it would heal properly. And then he took those strips to make a cast and he put a cast around here. And if you've ever broken your thumb, they come all the way up here for some reason. And so he just kept coming with that cast. When Christy saw my thumb, she was like a sledgehammer. She did not help my thumb get better. She made it worse. Had I just simply said, oh, it's going to get better, I may have had arthritis in that thumb. It, it may have not grown back straight. It could have been crooked or something like that. But Dr. Freeland, gently. Put it back in place. Look at that rational. <laughs> it works perfectly. There's no stiffness, no soreness. It never hurts. If I had chosen to ignore the injury, who knows what this thumb might have done. And if I had had someone, you know, working, let me do this, it might have been messed up even more. Paul said, it's the responsibility of the church not to ignore somebody's sin. We may think that's loving. That's not at all loving. Someone's making bad decisions that you know are going to lead to trouble in their lives, and you don't say anything about it. What does that say about your relationship with them? Somebody's ruining their lives. And, oh, I just don't want to. What does that say? Paul says we do not ignore, but we do not come on too strong. We use no more force than necessary. We use all the force that is necessary, but not anymore. And we gently put back in place. And so we lift up each other. The second idea that Paul talked about is that we lean on each other. In verse 2, Paul said, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. He said, there are going to be times when people in a church family go through struggles. They go through trials. They go through some issues that, that really weigh heavily on them. And Paul said, during, during those seasons, when a person is suffering grief or loss or sickness or, or stress or financial difficulty, whatever it might be, Paul said that, that the rest of us get in there with that person and say, hey, look, 
Let us help you carry that burden. There are times when you and I have looked at the suffering of another person, the struggling of another person, the difficulty of another person, and we respond to them by saying, look, if I could do anything in the world to get you out of this, I, I can't. It looks like you are going to have to go through this, but you don't have to go through it alone. We are here. You're carrying a heavy burden, but we will carry it with you. Paul says we're to lean on each other. To be vulnerable, honest, transparent with other people. To share when we are discouraged so that others can come around us and carry what is too heavy for us to carry. I'm not sure if the scene that I'm going to tell you is the, the first time that I saw this principle in action, but it is the first time that I remember it. One day when I was eating lunch in the cafeteria at West Point High School, it was my junior year, Mr. Higginbotham's voice came over the intercom. He was our principal. And he said, Gary Permenter, report to the office. Gary Permenter, report to the office. And everybody at the table where I was, it was mainly women, they would not leave me alone. <laughs> I don't know why you think that's funny. <laughs> and so I was sitting there at the table and everybody, ooh, I, I am not in trouble. I have not done anything wrong. And they said, yeah, that's why people go to the office, because they haven't done anything wrong. I walked down to the office, and my mother was there. Her clothes were filthy. I said, Mama, what is wrong? She said, your dad's restaurant is burned. He had run to the grocery store. Daddy bought products locally. And so he had run to Larson's Big Star to buy ground beef for the lunch rush to make hamburgers and hamburger steaks. And somehow a fire started in the kitchen. Someone trying to help went out through the back door and the draft caught that flame and just carried it, destroyed the kitchen, destroyed the serving area, the dining area, basically had only smoke damage, but there, there's, if there's no kitchen and serving area, there's no reason for the dining area. And so she's, my mom said, look, we're not going to tell your little brother. You go pick him up at, at school. He was at Fifth Street Junior High. And we'll just update you, you know, when we know more. I walked back toward the cafeteria, and my mind was, I mean, teenagers don't know a lot about their parents' finances, except they think that you've got more than you have. But I... I did know that my dad was the main provider for our family. My mom did work for the school system, but, but daddy made more of the money that we lived on. And I don't even know why I remembered this, I, I, but I did. I remembered that my mom and dad had several discussions about the insurance on this restaurant. And daddy admitted, he confessed he did not have enough but it, the premium was too high, so he got all he could afford, and then that was it. And so I began thinking, it, we're going to be in for some lean times. 
I went through the rest of the school day, went over to Fifth Street, picked my brother up, told him what had happened, and when we turned off of Miller Avenue in West Point onto Hibbler Street where we lived, there was a white van sitting in our driveway, like a FedEx van, but it didn't have any markings on it. I pulled into the carport and looked over, and I saw in the van Timmy Terman was sitting there. Timmy Terman worked for the grocery store, the quick shop that Gene and Marie Baldwin owned right around the corner on Braham Avenue. He later went on, this is a little trivia for you, later went on to, to own Strombo's. And so I pulled into the carport and said, Timmy, what's going on? He said, I've got some groceries here in the back for you. I said, are you sure? The quick shop was a little smaller grocery store that delivered and before, way before COVID. And so I said, are you sure? My mom never got groceries delivered. She always went to the grocery store. And I said, are you sure we never get groceries delivered? He said, your parents didn't order these. People have heard what happened at your dad's restaurant. And they have been calling all day long. We hang up the phone. We pick it right back up again. And we opened up the back of that van. It was stacked from the floor to the ceiling with groceries. We unloaded and took them inside. And I said, Timmy, thank the Baldwins. He said, oh, I'll be back. I've got at least two more van loads. <laughs> it was amazing. And what I remember thinking was there had been plenty of times in West Point when my mom and dad had stepped in to help someone who was really struggling. They had said, you come lean on us for minutes. And now that we were struggling, those people were saying, you come lean on us. That is the body of Christ. We are to lean on each you may have noticed, however, the way that I did, that Paul said something in verse 5 that seems to contradict what he said in verse 2. In verse 2, Paul said, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Excellent. But then look down in verse 5. For each person will have to carry his own load. Well, now, wait a minute. Paul, do we carry each other's burdens? Or you say, hey, you need to be independent. You need to carry your own load. Just as in English, burden and load are two different words, when Paul was writing this instruction, he used two different words. The word burden is something like a boulder, something that, that even if a person wanted to carry it, it would just be impossible for one person to carry. The word load, however, is more like a backpack that we would put on and carry. And so Paul said, look, what we as a church are to do is to carry each other's burdens, but no one is to be manipulative or guilt trip. It's like, you know what? I don't want to even carry my own backpack. You carry every, I don't want to do everything. Churches have been victimized by people who just throw their sympathy stories out, say, I don't, I don't really want to even do anything for myself. You do it all for me. Paul said, no, that's not the way the church works. We each carry our own loads. We each say, this is my backpack, and it's my responsibility to carry it. 
burdens. Let's help each other carry them. So we're to lift up each other. We're to lean on each other. Third, I'm going to really get through this one quickly. We are to learn from each other. Starting there in verse 4, Paul said, let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. There is a tendency in the church for people to start feeling pretty good about themselves. They start evaluating their faithfulness to the church. They start thinking about how much they give. They look at the financial statements and say, well, I know what I gave, so that means everybody else is doing this. They start looking around and every time the church needs something, I'm always there. I'm more mature than the rest of these people. I'm growing in my relationship with Christ. There is a tendency for us to start saying, you know what? Everybody else needs to learn from me. But Paul says we all have things to learn from each other. No one here is at a point where he or she can say, you know, I just... I don't need to learn from anybody else. Paul said, when you start comparing yourself to other people, you start thinking you are something when you're really nothing. Well, then down in verse 6, Paul said, let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. We need to learn from each other. We need to, to pick up the lessons that we can share. That's why we have the table talk. That's why we have Sunday school. And one of the ways that we learn Paul said in verse seven, verses 7 and 8, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. One of the main roles that we have in the church is to live a life of godliness so that people can say, I see the blessings that come from that life. They are sowing good seeds in their lives. And look at the harvest. Look at what is coming up. Look at the harmony in their relationships. Look at the blessings that they experience. I need to learn from how they live. And then some people's lives serve as an example in the wrong way. Look at the seeds they're planting. Look at what's happening in their lives. I don't want that to happen to me. So we learn from each other. We lift up each other. We lean on each other. We learn from each other. And then fourth, in verses 9 and 10, Paul said we love on each other. Paul said in verse 9, Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Paul said one of the ways that the church mobilizes itself. One of the ways that it demonstrates the transforming work that Jesus does in us is when we love on each other. When we create a community of people that have authentic, genuine love. Not superficial nodding, not, hey, good to see you today. Interconnected bonds of people that say we are family. The night before Jesus was crucified, he said, here's the one way people will know that you really belong to me. By the depth of how much you love each other. I grew up in a really small church, smaller than Mershaville. And we did, never had someone who did age-based work with us, really. It was a great, I mean, they, they loved us. But we never had Wednesday night Youth. We went in prayer meeting with the adults on Wednesday. You know, there was just 
we just kind of did everything with the church. So I, I never really grew up with anybody helping me learn as a teenager what it meant to be a follower of Christ. But when I went to Mississippi State and got into BSU, a whole new world opened for me. Every semester, we took a retreat, fall and spring semesters. On the Sunday morning of the retreat, the director typically would give students time to talk. If there was something that God had said to them over the weekend or some, some prayer request that they wanted to share, whatever, you could just get up and share. And so we had a microphone just like this one. And our director was saying, hey, do you want to come up and share? You know, now's the time to do it. And so a boy walked to the front. His name was Keith. Keith and I were the same age, are the same age. He, is, he was a freshman, and I was a first-semester freshman as well. Keith went to the microphone, and he kind of adjusted it like this, but he would hardly even look out at the crowd. He, mm, uh, I, uh, I guess you've known... I mean, I guess you've noticed that uh, I've spent a lot of time by myself over the weekend. It was true, he had. He had been by himself a good deal. He said, I, you know, I've eaten my meals at a table by myself. I walked around the lake by myself. And we all had noticed that, you know, that he had, he had spent a lot of time alone. And Keith then said, I, I guess it's just because I'm alone. I've never had friends, Keith said. But I don't want to be this way. He said, the, the way that I have lived is, it's better to be by myself than to be rejected. It, it's better to choose to distance yourself than to try to be apart and be rejected. And so that's the way that I've always lived. He said, but I don't want to be that way. And he put his head down and would just kind of mumble and look up every now and then he said, if somebody, I don't know, if somebody would just show me that they loved me. If somebody would just reach out to me, if somebody would tell me I was okay, if, if somebody would just show me that they really loved me, then maybe I wouldn't be a loner. Maybe I wouldn't walk around the lake by, by myself. I don't know. And when Keith was talking, I looked around the room. There were tears streaming out of all of these eyes. And when he finished, girls raced to the front. And they surrounded Keith. We don't have to be a loner. We love you. I was in the back saying, girls, I'm a loner too. <laughs> hey, girls, he's not the only one. I'm deficient. Girls, please. <laughs> and do you know, Keith and I were in school together seven more semesters. Now, he continued for a couple of victory laps, but I finished up in four. We were together seven more semesters. And every Sunday morning of retreat, Keith gave the same speech. And it worked every single time. We boys would be sitting in the back saying, girls, please, what are you doing? It's the same thing. It always worked. <laughs> now, I disagree with Keith's motives and methods. But I 100% agree 
with what he knew to be true. Keith knew if I need to be loved, these people will do it. He got it the wrong way, but what he knew was right. That's what virtue needs to be. For people in our county to say, if I need to be loved, those people will do it. What is your place in the church? Not talking about the pew where you sit. What is your role? I've just given you four of them. We're to lift up each other. We're to lean on each other. Allow people to lean on us. We're to learn from each other. And we're to love on each other. And there's not one individual in this room that says, man, that's good for somebody else. It's for you. It's for me. It's for us. Rebecca's going to come and lead us in a closing song of commitment. You never know who's in a church building on a Sunday morning if there are people who are wrestling with personal <coughs> spiritual issues. I'll stand at the front for just a moment in case you need to come and talk and pray, and then we'll have some announcements and be dismissed. Let's all stand together, please.